The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And let's go with the highly anticipated Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, Chris Jericho. Susan Holm McKagan here. Uh, So my husband tells me I have two major faults. One is I don't listen. And the other is something else. (laughs) Susan Holmes McKagan, Duff's lovely wife, getting in on the action this week. Thank you, Susan for helping out Duff and being actually probably even funnier than he is. Uh, we love you both here on Talk is Jericho. And, of course, we love Lance Storm returning to TIJ because we're going to tell the whole story about our first trip to Japan when we went to wrestle for FMW in October of 1991. Oh, my gosh, almost 32 years ago. You hear it from the very beginning, uh, and we aren't leaving any details out from the flights over to Japan to the hotels we stayed in, uh, drinking bars, uh, the matches, the opponents, juicing for the first time and as crazy as it sounds we actually went over there without any visas uh we got ripped off uh, money wise uh we got on the plane to go across the world with no contact information for who would be meeting us on the other end i was 20 years old lance was 21 maybe 22 think crazy to think about that now my son ash is 19 there's no way i'd let him go to japan with no visa and no contact information but that's the way we did it and it was the way it was and we liked it so uh, here we go, Lance Storm and the FMW Sudden Impact hits Japan, October 1991, right here on Talk is Jericho. All right, so uh, I listen to um, Lance Storm every week on uh, Wrestling Observer Live uh, with Brian Alvarez, and Lance always has great commentary and drives himself insane with booking issues or whatever. <laughs> but lately, you have been doing something which I find really cool is kind of your history in the business from the beginning with all the different countries and territories and places that you went. And you did one recently about your first tour, aka my first tour, aka our first tour of Japan. And I listened to it and I enjoyed it so much that I thought, well, we should do that on my show because there's a lot of things that you said I didn't remember, and I'm sure vice versa, and just a lot of great memories and that sort of thing. So that's what we're going to talk about today, our first tour of FMW. And I also have, just for extra added memory pulls, is the complete list of Jericho, and we'll go through every match that we had and see if we remember anything about it as well. And I haven't 
look through this. I'm completely cold as well. And we'll just see kind of what happens for this tour. Oh, God. That was October 10th, 1991. So tell us kind of the, the background of how this all happened and, and kind of what led us to do this tour in the first place. Okay, before we get to that, I, I do want to mention, this is why I was totally into doing this show, is I find it so amazing that I will have memories that you're 100% positive or accurate, but you're going to have different ones. And then when you bring them up, I'll be like, oh, crap, you're right. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's nice to be able to pool our collective memories, because as we get older, they may not be the best. Just to, to to get in there too, another thing about these years as well that's so important for us to to document as much as we can is like this is pre-internet era, pre-websites and and YouTube's like there's really no documentation of these times. There's a couple snapshots, a couple pictures comes up once in a while, but other than our memories, there's nothing has ever really been told about this before. Yeah, and so many people today don't realize that cell phones weren't a thing, let alone smartphones that had good cameras in them, <laughs> right. that you had to actually bring a physical camera with film with you to get shots, which is why we have so few. Or the instant camera where you click it and wind it, and then you throw it in your bag and take it to the drugstore and they give you the prints 10 days later. <laughs> yes. So, 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 I didn't mean to interrupt you. So you're talking about how this kind of all came to be in, in your recollection. Yeah. You know, Chris and I were both, you know, we were sudden impact. Everybody thinks we were the thrill seekers the whole time, but we started as sudden impact as a tag team working for a guy named Fred Jung. Our second show was promoted by Jung. Yeah. And we worked as sudden impact. So we're constantly looking for a break. And Fred, who to this day is probably the guy I least like would be closest to attribute the word hate to my description of him in the business. And it's funny because, because young kids these days will still tell me stories of like, yeah, I, I really want to work more, but I'm not allowed to leave, you know, my, my, my company. And so how often does your company run? Well, once a month, it's like, well, you can't work anywhere <laughs> else. And that was kind of Fred Jones thing. He was, uh, I don't know. So, so in October of 91, I was 20 and where were you 21 or 22 Lance? 22. So we're just kids like 20. I'm not even legal in the States yet, which is so crazy to even think about. And Fred was probably 24, 25, but he's one of those guys. I think he who, was between us. I think I might've actually been a touch older than him. Wow. I think that was part of the problem. Like there was a lot of indie politics, you know, guys that lied to us, you know, Ed promising the Germany trip, Fred promising this. Right. And I think I could tolerate it from the people that were older than me. <laughs> But the fact that it's like, you didn't know who he was. Like, you, you know, he says he promoted shows that use Dynamite Kid, but I'm like, I've never heard of you. You can't look him up because there's no internet. So it's like, who is this young guy? And I have a tendency to believe he's completely full of crap. But we didn't we didn't know for sure because he was, like you said, a younger guy, always dressed up nice, kind of had airs of being somebody, which is a great way to kind of, you know, manipulate people into believing you. And he was always saying that, like you said, he used to run shows with Dynamite Kid and he had an in with a guy called Ricky Fuji, who was Masanori Morimura, who had wrestled in Calgary. I think kind of the last dregs of Stampede Wrestling, he had come to train with Mr. Hito or something like this. Yep. And Ricky Fuji worked for FMW. 
So Fred was was always promising Japan, and much like you mentioned Ed Langley in Germany, which the story of that quickly is that he kept promising us that we'd go to Germany. He was our original trainer. And, you know, okay, like it's next week, get your passport ready. And then <laughs> it's two weeks from now. Fred was the same. I remember Fred going, okay, you guys got a tour coming up. Your work visa is uh, going to be in the FedEx. It's coming there at 1030, literally waiting by the gate. Like, is my, is my visa coming? And like nothing. And, it's, and so it was always kind of getting pushed back more and more and more. It's like you said, is this guy even real? Yeah. And the, the, the saving grace for him was he got Rick Bogner, Rick Titan, the second Razor Ramon. That's right. He got him booked. So we had seen footage of Rick on VHS tape and Rick had come back and said he went to Japan and it was cool. So it's like Fred had credibility. But he was the first one, though, after after kind of spinning the plates on all of us, including Rick. He finally got Rick over there. Rick was about six foot eight, probably 260, 270. And back in those days, that was kind of the most important thing was how big are you? especially when you go to Japan. So he was the first guy to kind of go over there and, and, and have the first, you know, jump into the pool, shall we say? Yeah. And, and if memory serves, Fred approached you to be number two. And I think you pitched the, well, I'm in a tag team. What about us both? <laughs> that was back in the day when it was like, we're a tag team. And like, you know, it's like our first year in the business. It's like, well, I got a tag. I remember Michael Zanson going, dude, it doesn't work that way. Like, so what? Like, Although you wanna... it did. He pulled it off. Yeah, right, right, right. I was happily Brutus Beefcake to your Hulk Hogan. <laughs> but that was Sudden Impact. And from my recollection, and maybe we worked a couple shows for Fred as Sudden Impact, but the Sudden Impact idea was for Japan. It could be, but I know those two first shows we did because he had the Predators tag team and he dubbed us Sudden Impact. Okay. And we did like two shows. But yeah, he's promising us this Japan trip. We're figuring he's completely full of garbage. There was even this is, again, the indie politics of, you know, you had to be a, a, an Ed guy or a Fred guy. And, and with the dangling carrot of FMW, <laughs> we reluctantly became a Fred guy. But then Fred ran that one show that he wouldn't let us on. He allowed me to work it under a hood. And you did commentary as Clint Bobsky <laughs> with the explanation. And again, 20 and 22 that Onita didn't want us on television. This is cable access in Calgary because he was afraid Vince McMahon would see us and steal us before our first tour. So let me ask you this. Okay. And once again, obviously total bullshit. And, and just to kind of fill in what you're saying, Ed ran one show a month. That was our trainer. Fred ran one show a month. That's the guy's the case to Japan. If you worked for Fred, you weren't allowed to work for Ed and vice versa. It's one show a month. What difference does it make? But but anyways, like you said, but he wouldn't allow us on the one show that one month. Why do you think he wouldn't allow us? Because obviously the Onita story is total bullshit. I have no idea unless it's just the power play to be able to tell us something. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's like to make us listen, to make us obedient. I have no idea. Interesting. But yeah, I wrestled under a hood as the Black Mamba. <laughs> I faced uh, Paul, uh, fabulous Paul Laser, in a tag match. But yeah, I, I have no idea why. Maybe it was to try to make us think that's, you know, the FMW thing's even bigger because Onita is voicing an opinion on it. I think being like such a pathological liar, because there was another time that Lenny Gillespie and I drove all the way to Vancouver with Fred on the auspices that we needed to get our work visa to go to work for Benjamin Mora in Tijuana, Mexico. But you can't get a work visa. You got to drive to either Vancouver or drive to L.A. But when we got to Vancouver, 
something happened and we couldn't go to LA, but we were literally, this, this psycho is literally driving <laughs> 14 hours with us for a lie. And we didn't know any better. Nope. But that's how he was. Here's another little tidbit. See if you remember this sudden impact was one idea that he had. He had another idea for our tag team name. Do you remember what that was? No, none at all. The Northern Lights. That's right. And the idea was he was going to get tights made with fabric that actually would shoot light up and down it. And I remember I asked him, like, who are you, Willy Wonka? (laughs) (laughs) The magic fabric that changed colors. Like, how are you going to do that? He's like, no, we got this fabric. It can change color as you work. But Northern Lights was an idea. Which actually is a a pretty decent name, too, considering that we were from Canada and so forth. Quite honestly, Sudden Impact is a pretty cool name as well. In retrospect, at the time, I remember thinking kind of cheesy, but it's a pretty good name, especially for us because we we were very quick. But we, we were Calgary kids, so as they called us. So we were we had some hard hitting tendencies to us as well. I thought that was a pretty cool name. Yeah, I will give Fred that. He he did have good ideas for names. Do you remember when the first contract he produced for us that I to this day swear he took Rick's contract and whited out Rick's name and changed the dates and claimed that this was our contract that we had to sign yeah. to get us the visas that we never ever actually got? Dude, I mean, that's, you know, and once again, that that's kind of, a, a, we can tell it now, but yeah, we did not have work visas uh, going from Canada to Japan. Now, nowadays that's insane. Like I would never, you know, we, we didn't know any better. Of course you wouldn't do it now, but we didn't have any other choice. We didn't sign a contract. Like you said, I think that was a, a fake contract, a facsimile. And do you remember the one time, I don't know if you were there or not. We went to Denny's to celebrate Titans WCW contract. No. So Fred pulled out a contract from WCW. And I vividly remember it to this day. It was the same idea of a white piece of paper with whatever contract he had photocopied for something else. On the top was a WCW logo in color, but it was right from the WCW magazine. (laughs) He took it from the magazine, put it on this piece of paper, photocopied it and made it look legit. Except I remember thinking, like, I don't know anything about contracts would they really use the logo from the magazine on a contract? Maybe. I don't know. I didn't say anything, but I was like, this, that's when we were starting to realize this guy's kind of full of shit because he was plotting us against each other. He plotted me and Lenny against each other. He probably plotted you and me against each other. You know, I think at some point I just said, go fuck yourself. I'm not doing this anymore. But that's the thing. Like a lot of people might be listening and going, why do you put up with it? But it's yeah. when you've got your once or twice a month booking in Calgary or maybe Winnipeg, Actually, I don't think we've been to Winnipeg. Well, you you would have. We didn't have Winnipeg, I don't think, yet. On the 2% chance that it pans out, you put up with a lot of crap because you're looking for that break. Yeah. Like when the plane tickets showed up, I still didn't fully believe it. Like, like you said, because this is our world at the time, which is the Calgary scene. Because mm-hmm. we hadn't been to Winnipeg yet. I think my first tour of Winnipeg was in 92, and this is the end of 91. I'm pretty sure you went right before Christmas, so after this tour, and I started you're like, right. February or like it was yeah I was there in September just looking at it right now is the, the book that I have here so anyways it's Calgary it's a little bit of Winnipeg so in this world you don't want to piss off Fred Jung because maybe he's right and Titan did go to Japan so we really want to go and then we finally got the chance and it, it, it happened we didn't get the visas the contract we weren't sure about but the plane tickets came and these are old school plane tickets for for people that aren't as old as us it's a paper ticket so when you have whatever it was two or three connections it's a thick ticket and if you lose this thing you're in big trouble mister so you don't lose that ticket (laughs) so we finally did get booked 
I don't, I don't remember if it was a month before or two weeks before, but in a way we go, our passport's ready and, and, and we're getting ready for this tour. Yeah. And me being the guy who abides by rules and likes to do everything straight up, I was really nervous by the, just say you're visiting Ricky Fuji and this is a vacation. Yeah. I think they provided uh, his address for us. And so we fly over and then worse yet, you know, you get to customs and immigrations and, and it's like, we're taller than most of the Japanese people there. And I'm just like, I'm sticking out like a sore thumb. It's like, they're totally going <laughs> to nail us at the border. And I was like, just terrified. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Well, before we get to the board, let's talk about the flight. The day comes that we're getting ready to go over there. <laughs> so I live in Okotoks, which is south of Calgary. The airport is north of Calgary. So the idea is I'll come to your house and we'll drive there together. Yeah, I was renting a room from Steve Gillespie. Steve Gillespie was a local Calgary wrestler. Yeah. So Chris was going to drive, leave his car at, at Steve's place, and then Steve would take us to the airport. And much like I am a rule abider, <laughs> I am also chronically early. So I'm thinking that we have to, you know, get to the airport this many early and I'm figuring, okay, we have to leave by, let's say nine o'clock, nine o'clock rolls around and no Jericho and there's no cell phone. So you can't call the guy. Right. Good call, man. Jeez. And it's like, again, if we were supposed to leave by nine, I'm probably pacing at the door in my, you know, shirt and tie at, at eight 30, figuring that, you know, we need to make a good impression and be early and be on time. <laughs> Jericho pulls up at 920 or something, all casual with a, all right, let's go. So, <laughs> well, let me say this. I had to get a, either someone gave me a ride or maybe I'm a car, but I remember I did not do that being nonchalant. Like I'm, I'm the same as you dude. Like I need to be at the airport an hour before I've always been the way something went down. Cause I lived in the farm in Okotoks and something happened where I was too, like, we got to go, man. And if maybe, <laughs> maybe Brad, Palco, the guy I was living with, gave me a ride. Something happened where I was freaking out too. So I didn't take it lightly. I wasn't like, you know, I might have been nonchalant when I got to you, but I was pretty freaking out. But my favorite thing is we're flying to Japan. We got to go Calgary to LA, LA to Tokyo, Narita. I've got, you know, probably at the time jams, like those kind of sweatpant fabric things and a t-shirt, whatever. Lance is wearing a shirt and a tie. <laughs> what was your mindset for the shirt and the tie? I, I think it was just, again, you know, you know, training my, my dad. It's like, you know what I mean? You're going to a new job. It's supposed, you know, it felt to me like this was a big deal. I should look professional and show up like, I mean, serious business. So I put on a shirt and a tie, not uh, realizing that we're just going over there getting picked up by the referee and heading to a hotel. But I wanted to make a good impression. And again, I'm going to keep my memory that you were totally casual and nonchalant because okay. it's a better story in my head. Well, and maybe that, but I do remember something happened along the way that did throw it off. It wasn't like I like, Oh, it's time to go. And of course as well, you know, you could have just put a shirt and a tie in your carry on and went to <laughs> put it on 10 minutes before you landed. <laughs> yeah. could have put it on 14 hours later. Just a quick story. about when we were flying from Calgary to, um, to LA, we got on the flight and then, and the Edmonton Oilers were on the flight too. 
they had just played the Calgary Flames. And I had a, this is classic, you know, Brian Adams, God bless him, late great Brian Adams crush would always say like, uh, I got a terrible seat on the plane. They gave me middle seat smoking. And literally at the time, there was a smoking section and a non-smoking section. And I had middle seat smoking going from Calgary to LA. I sat next to a guy who was an, like, obviously he's an oiler. You can tell big guy. This is before they flew private. And he looked so familiar and I couldn't place it. So he gets up to go to the bathroom and I look, his, his carry on is in between the, under the seat. So I pull the carry on out and I look at the name tag and his name is Dave Semenko. One of the all-time toughest players in NHL history. He was Gretzky's shadow. If you mess with Gretzky, Semenko would kill you. I look at the thing, Dave Semenko, and then, he, and then I hear this, get your hands off my f***ing bag. And it was like, he's standing right there. <laughs> <laughs> he sits down. I get the longest three hours of my life. I'm sorry, just looking at the ground. I got stuck middle seat smoking once from LA to Japan. It was the longest flight of my life. I think, thankfully they weren't as strict on staying in your seat. And I think I got out of my seat and spent the whole flight standing and non-smoking. But that's how it was for the, probably the first five years of our career. I mean, we were going to Japan quite a bit. I, the only time I ever had first class is if I was able to finally get a voucher somehow after getting so many frequent flyer miles. And even then you would call 10 times sometimes before they would put it through. But if not, you were like, this. I almost think we, we didn't even know how to change our seats or, or you couldn't do that back then, but I always had a middle seat. So Anyways, we, we, we get to, to Tokyo. Uh, like you mentioned, we, we, we go to customs with no visa, blatantly lying that we're there as tourists. And also, here's another thing. Like you mentioned, no cell phones. And all we were told is someone's going to pick you up. Yes. And we have no contact information other than Fred. Now, I'm thinking my poor parents, all of our parents, were like, if my son got a gig in Japan... It would never happen this way nowadays, but he's 20 and he's going to Japan and all he has is a, someone's going to pick you up there and you don't have a visa. I mean, that's human trafficking. <laughs> Literally. No phone, no contact information for him or for you to contact him when he's in Japan. Nothing. I do remember though, we go and uh, yeah, the referee is called Ito. Yep. Sounds familiar. And he was there on FM. Like once we got there, obviously they, they're making themselves known. They've got the FMW tracksuit, which at the time were, were a bright orange. We have those pictures, so and maybe he wasn't wearing a tracksuit, but I remember that we, we knew that that was the guy. And I think he had a sign, you know, probably sudden impact or whatever on it. And he grabbed us and then took us to the FMW because unlike war, when we were there where we were all in the same bus, FMW had the Japanese bus and the Gaijing bus. Yeah. And, and I think we had to wait around for a couple of the other foreigners to get in because there was there was Mike Awesome, Horse Boulder. Uh, Mark Starr, and then we had Ultraman, who was later Damien 666, I believe, and Pandita, which was a Mexican dude in a panda outfit. <laughs> He's literally in a full-on panda outfit, and the reason why is Japanese love pandas. They're kind of like very spiritual creatures, so Pandito would uh, come to the ring as this lovable little panda, hand out candy to the children, and was probably the most obnoxious, annoying character in the ring if you weren't, you know, a 12 year old kid. Yeah. But we're not talking tights that are painted like a panda and a lucha mask that looks like a panda. Yeah. No, like he looks like a big stuffed animal bear with the big round head. Yes. And the padded costume. It was ridiculous. It's yeah. He's like wearing a full on like Winnie the Pooh costume, but it's a panda. And I remember his name was Alvarado and he was super ugly he had a big nose, like pockmarked <laughs> face. 
And, you know, like these guys, they, you could, they, they probably came over for less than what we came over for, but just happy to be there. Like we were in Japan the first night at the hotel. It was a, a business hotel, which now is about the size, less than the size of my office here. It's a very small place, but they gave us uh, the room, a thousand yen or 1500 yen. No, it would have been, it was a hundred dollars, 10,000 yen. 10,000 yeah. yen, sorry. So 10,000 yen. And there's, so it's 10, $1,000 bills. You probably took the picture. I still have it of me in the robe from the hotel, holding the 10,000 yen <laughs> and just like, we're the fucking stones, man. We've we're, made it. We're Mick and Keith now. Like we've got all this money and we've got free hotel room. They gave us a room each, a room each for free, but then you got to go find something to eat. Oh my God. Do you remember this? I remember having to go to something and thinking like, we're going to starve to death because you can't just google fast food near me on your phone yeah you have to wander the streets and hope you can find something and i think we ended up just finding something at the lawson station well and that's exactly what happened because it was kind of like a business district it was a business hotel so it was not like a tourist area or like if, you, if you're talking tokyo like uh, shinjuku or shibuya you walk out the front it's like Times square this was not that it was very dark i think it was almost i remember it was raining and so you walk outside and, we're, and we found a lawson station which is like a 7-Eleven, but I remember like, well, what do we, okay, we found the place, but then you go in there and it's like, what are we going to eat? <laughs> like cream cheese sandwiches and like pizza with squid and corn on it. Chicken fingers that are 95% fat. Uh, I remember I bought a big thing of milk because I was a milk guy and I drank in half of it. And I was just like, oh my God, I spit it everywhere. It was goat milk. <laughs> <laughs> just nothing really to eat, like you said, right? Yeah. And I believe we tried to eat in the restaurant of the hotel in the morning and we found out that you have to be very specific that you want your eggs really, really, really cooked. Yes. Or you get slightly warmed raw eggs. Yeah, like basically like snot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Tell us some more of the stuff that you remember, and then we, afterwards we can talk about the actual matches. I do remember that the, the Americans kayfabed us a bit for a little while mm -hmm. i think they had some recreational items with them that they wanted to kayfabe us on yeah, they, they brought some weed with them over there i remember the one time we stopped at a truck stop and they just walked away from us and we we're like well that's kind of weird it was kind of like a forest around it and we walked down the path and we saw them at the end of the path and we thought well maybe we should go over there they probably obviously don't want us and then i remember a couple of days later mark Starr was like what did you guys think when you saw us on the path? And I thought like, well, you know, guys are probably just hanging out or like, he was like, you know, I think I've figured out you guys think you're smoking a joint and they're like, good. We thought that you, you th might think that we were buggering each other. <laughs> oh, really? He literally said that. We thought maybe you thought that we were out there, you know, like making out or whatever it was. It's like, I didn't think it. That's not what we were thinking. I just thought maybe you guys were smoking a joint, but that kind of broke the ice. Cause these guys were three Florida guys. Mike awesome. Gladiator was from Tampa. Horace Boulder, which did you know he's Hulk Hogan's nephew? 
Yeah, and they're like cousins or something by marriage. By marriage, right? He's also Hogan's nephew. And then Mark Starr was another another guy. All three of them ended up in WCW at one point. So they were just, just once again, because there was a Florida connection because Tarzan Goto, who was second in command to Onita, his wife Despina was a Florida girl. So that was the Florida connection to bring over any foreigners you could find from that area. And then they had the Calgary connection, which was Titan, Lance and Chris. Dr. Luther was very popular there. Uh, Gillespie ended up going over there as Dr. Hannibal. Uh, so there was kind of a, a connection that they were pulling these foreigners from. Yeah, and they eventually warmed up to us. Because again, you know, I, I who was it? There was someone recently, like a pot infraction in Japan is much more serious. It's terrible. Yeah. Matt Sidel. Yes, that was, yeah. He, he had uh, some serious issues. But yeah, other than that, I'm trying to think. Again, our first night, because I do want to go chronological with this mm -hmm. to, to tie in. Let's talk about that. We separate locker room, separate bus. So we get to, you know, the building and we're taken to our locker room and it's just the five of us again and the referee and they've got the lineup on the wall. And I go over and look mm -hmm. and I'm looking for a tag match with like sudden impact on it or Lance Storm and Chris Jericho on it. And I look down the sheet and I don't see our names. And this is how insanely paranoid I was with Fred. <laughs> I looked at it and went, he us. We're not booked. Like the ref picked us up. They gave us money. And I still think Fred lied to us and we're not actually booked because we're not on the card. And I remember running into you or I looked on the thing and see that. And I'm thinking that motherfucker us. And then I look over at you and I'm like, can you believe this? And you go, I know it's crazy, right? Or something to that effect. Yeah. So I think you're on the same page with me, and you go, "We're in the main event," and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> so I go back and I look at the sheet, and the main event is a six man, which is why I didn't look at it. And the names on the sheet are Kleiss, C L I S E, I think, and Runts. Yeah. R U N C E, and it's like, oh, it's Kleiss and Runts. We're in this match. <laughs> See now, from my side of the coin. I was uh, really into a Japanese metal band in the 80s called Loudness. The, we, we figured you can't say the L sound in Japanese. You know, the L sound is an R. The R sound is an L. And I kind of just knew that from being a fan and reading some articles and whatever. So when I was looking at the sheet and kind of by the, by the process of elimination, I was like, well, Kleiss, Runts, those aren't guys. So Kleiss, is it possible that the L is supposed to be an R, which would be Chris, Christ, and is it possible that the L R is supposed to be an L, which is Luntz? And I'm like, that's us, man. That we're we're Kleiss and Runtz. And we're <laughs> in the main event of our first show in Japan. I had 30 matches. You might have had a couple more because you did Winnipeg. Yeah. But we are green one year in the business kids from Calgary. And we're in the main event against Atsushi Onita. Yeah. Sambo Asaka, who is a former sumo guy. And a Korean kickboxer named Weda who wrestles in boxing gloves. Yeah. And Mark Starr was our partner. And we were in Kanagawa, Japan. And oh, listen, here's the thing. I don't know what Fred did. I don't know how he pumped us up. But they had us in the main event. The very first night, I had 41 matches. This is my 41 first match. You said you had 30. And I'm reading the finish here. Do you know? Do you remember what the finish was that night? Onita pin Mark Starr. That's right. So thinking about that, they didn't even have us take the fall. Yeah, which I think in hindsight, what a better way to make new stars than not beat us our first night in. 
but I remember too, because we'd never even met the other three. Only the ref Ito came back and forth. And in my memory, the only instruction we were given was Onita up on Mark with his Thunderfire powerbomb. And Chris and I were to get color. Get juice. We were to get busted yeah. open and, and bleed in this match. And neither one of us had ever done that. And it's like, that was it. It's like, just go have a main event. Yeah. And it was, I think Mike might, might've been one of the others, but the, the Americans had blades because FMW was a big blood promotion. We didn't have stuff for that. Yeah. So they made us blades, showed us what we were doing and give us some advice. And we prepared to head out and the other, and I'm curious if it was just natural coincidence or whether you actually did this as a rib on me, we're going to the ring and I'm thinking it's like, okay, Mark's been here before and you and I agree. And so it's like, I'm just assuming he's going to start. And we get in the ring, and at least in my memory, we stand in the ring, and they do the introductions, and I turn around to step out of the ring, and you and Mark are standing on the apron. And I'm like, son of a bitch. I guess I'm starting. Well, it wasn't a rib, but I was super nervous. I didn't want to start. Like, I didn't know what to do. And I remember that whole tour, I was like, will you just start, Lance? Like, I just, like, you had, for whatever reason, had a bit more confidence or whatever. You're like, could I'll do it. I was, I was nervous. I was scared because we would also do a double backflip from the top rope. Yes. And I'd say if we had 10 matches, which I think we had, I probably bailed on five of them. Like five out of 10 times, I didn't didn't make it. And it was one of those things that I was just really nervous and just really kind of, what are we doing here? And like you said, there's no spots called. Nothing. We didn't see anybody. I know who Onita is. Sambo is this big, he's probably our height, but he's a big round roly-poly guy. And Weta... He looked like a villain in an Indiana Jones movie. He's smiling. He had no front teeth. And he's wearing boxing gloves and boxing shorts. Yeah, the kickboxing shorts, yeah. Yes. And just to, you mentioned that that Boulder made my blade. I still make blades to this day exactly that way that Boulder showed me. I make them for everybody in AEW because no one knows, no one's <laughs> ever done it before, right? Yeah. And I also think like when you, when you see those horrible like mass transit uh new jack butcheries they easily could have went watch this here's the blade kid just do it like no tape no protection oh yeah they could have really ribbed us bad and then and also too during the match i lost my blade and i was so scared i didn't know what to do and i don't remember if someone bladed me or if i used someone else's blade or if i just didn't blade at all you didn't get color because i didn't get that color, was right. what i assume why on at least two other occasions on the tour, you were asked to get color and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. They wanted to make sure it was an accident and you just didn't do it. Yeah. But jumping back to the beginning of the match, and this was a good rib, because I, I do remember, I think it was Mike, before we went out, he did mention, he says, you want to get over, he says, Sambo, as big as fat as he is, he actually takes a good body slam. So if you want to get over, you can slam the guy. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So you guys wrote then, and I start with Sambo, and I'm like, okay, he's the veteran because I'm just, you know, green nobody. <laughs> He'll do something. And I tied up with him, and he just stood there and did nothing. So I had to just start fighting him. Yeah. And at some point in time, I figured it's like, okay, I'll, I'll body slam him. Well, it was a rib. He does not go up well. <laughs> I barely got him off the ground, and it was the worst body slam in the history of the world. 
And I remember because <laughs> our locker room was up, there was windows. You could watch the, the, the arena area from our locker room. And after the world's worst body slam, I looked up and they were laughing their ass off at me. I mean, you just walked right into that one. You know what I mean? Like, come on, man. And that's a, that's a good rib. It's a great, like, rib, you know, yeah. giving you a hatchet and, you know, requiring 18 stitches for a laugh is a bad rib. Not a rib. That was a good one. Here's something that wasn't a rib, but it was essentially a rib on me. Cause I think at the point when you tagged out at some point, my first guy was Wade. Yep. Now, if I mentioned Wade to Lenny right now, I said, Lenny, what do you think of Wade? He'd say the stiffest fucking guy he's ever wrestled in his life. This guy, because FMW is frontier martial arts wrestling, and they used a lot of martial artists that didn't know anything about wrestling. I'm sure when he said, just go in there and beat him up. And that's what he was. He was beating the hell out of me. And there's no working or like, you know, okay, kid, like it's just fight, 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 corner, kicking, 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 kicking. And in FMW, like you said, there were no rules. It became what ECW became. It was Puerto Rico style, which was just then FMW, then ECW. There's no rules. And I remember at one point, this guy's just kicking my ass so bad. I just literally rolled to the floor. I grabbed a chair. I came back in the ring and I hit him as hard as I could on the fucking head with the chair. <laughs> and I remember he looked at me kind of like, why'd you do that? And kind of lightened up on me after that. But I didn't know what else to do. Like, he was beating me up so bad. I'm just like, I'm just going to hit him with a chair. I guess you're allowed to do that here. Yeah, see, my memory, because I, I remember, or at least I have a memory of the Americans warning us that that guy will eat you up if you don't fire back. Right. And I have a memory of him backing you into a corner and start throwing knees to your body and you just punching him right in the face. Yeah. Because, <laughs> and, and that's one thing that, Chris will not back down from a fight, and if, if shit's on, he will throw. And he threw, and and thankfully, because he was fine with me, because I worked with him again later in the match, and we're just brawling. But there, and there was a point where there was a table set up against the post, and I don't know if it was him or Sambo grabbed me and started running me at the table, and I'm like, I guess this is when I'll get color. And I ran into the table and fell down and came up with color, and it was the first time I'd ever gotten it, and. It seemed fine by everybody. And we just brawled until <laughs> that's all it was until yeah. we saw Onita hit the power bomb. And it's like, oh, I guess we're done now. And that's literally what it was. Every match was just fighting, brawling, fight, 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 fight. And it was just, I remember just thinking, this is so strange to me. Like we've talked about before when we, when we had the show about our first match, like it's not like we had everything planned out back then, but we knew a spot or two and we kind of had some ideas. This was none of that. Like you said, Onita over Mark with the powerbomb. You guys get color. Have at it. Yep. And Onita was so popular that all they wanted to see was Onita get the win and do his shtick, which was Wild Thing playing, uh, which is the same version that Mox uses in AEW. Everybody would rush to the ring and Onita would be crying, crying about how how, how he's so honored and, and this fighting spirit. He would pour water over his head. And they would stay for 20, 30 minutes. It was the damnedest thing you've ever seen. He was so over. Like, to me, he was as over as Austin in 2001. You know, uh, Rock in 2000. He was so fucking popular. It was crazy because FMW was, what, number three, maybe number four. Who knows what company? Yes. But he was such a big star. It's like, dude, it'd sell out baseball stadiums. It would be like a person in Impact Wrestling being so hot that they're selling out stadiums for him. Yeah, he was crazy. He wasn't quite at that level yet. He might have had a stadium show, but everywhere we went, like, because we worked in Japan for a lot of years with WAR, and then I've obviously with New Japan, I did a bunch of tours. And some places you would go, they're just not good houses. I remember this tour with Onita, and I'm just going over my numbers, which 
These are numbers that I wrote at the time. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I guess there was 2,200 people at that show. And as I go through, they're all basically that. There's one show that's about 350, which I think was in a parking lot, if you remember the parking lot show. Yep. I think you had to get color on that show. I had to get color on that show, yeah. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Now, do you remember the one of the first nights when we actually went out on the town? Vaguely. <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of memories, but I do have a few photos from it. So I do have some memory that the company took us out to some bar and they had, you know, they would have women that would sit with you and they would bring you drinks and they'd get you up to dance. I'm assuming the women were a gimmick to get you to drink more and, and you know, spend more money and stuff. But I do have a memory of that. I've got a picture in uh, in the complete list of Jericho of me, Ricky Fuji, and Lance Storm cutting a rug. <laughs> what they're called is they're called drinking bars. Um, so you go into the bar, you sit down, you get a bottle of whiskey or whatever. Girls surround you. They pour your drinks. They basically bring you food. They flirt with you like mofos. And then that's it. They're done. Then you get a bill. No, see, I didn't know that ricky fuji wasn't the office it was ricky fuji took you and me and, and maybe ito it was just the three or four of us it wasn't everybody from and we go to this bar and we sit down and all these girls come over i'm 20 i'm like oh my god like we're over in this place man <laughs> this is great and there's one girl you're super flirting with oh, i'm gonna have to take her back to the business hotel this is what a great you know first night or whatever it was and it's like would you like another bottle yes i would love another bottle and I remember, like you said, at the end of the night, all the chicks left. And I was like, where are you going? <laughs> and then they give us the bill. I'm like, a bill? Like, I thought this was free. Why would it be free, Chris? I don't know. I just thought it was free. I thought the girls were going to go home with me and I had free liquor. What a great place. The bill cost about 600 bucks, which was a week's pay for us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who, which one of us pitched in. I'm sure we probably all did the best we could. But I was I remember thinking wow what a what a scam that was you know and i don't think i ever went back to another drinking bar like i don't want to do this like this is terrible that you you got to pay extra for the bottle and the girls just basically flirt with you and leave you hanging this sucks but and then back to the matches like i remember working with goto a lot yeah and as well as obviously you know some of the the young lions you know including eiji Azaki, who would later become hayabusa yeah I, I, our second match was in aichi japan and it was it was us versus Izaki and the shooter, who later became the punk, just punk. Was Gonosuke or something his name? He was Honda. Honda. The shooter became the punk, some kind of punk. Okay. So, but these were young, young boys. And I think after the main event, they probably realized like these guys might be out of their element in just these fights. Let's stick them with some of the younger guys and see what they can do. And that's when we started to get a reputation for I'm not going to go so far as to say we knew how to work, but we were a little bit more advanced than our 40, 30 mat than our 70 combined matches would, well, yeah. would suggest. I remember having the conversation with the, with Hayabusa when he asked me how long we were working because he thought we were really good. And I was honest with him and said, one year I've had 32 matches or something. 
And he laughed and said, no, 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 serious, serious. And it's like, he didn't believe me. Yeah. And again, we were athletic and we were, you know, we had, you know, we were studying tapes and, you know, doing athletic moves and being noticed in that regard. So we, we looked better than we were. I remember doing like the one move, which was my trademark at the time was the reverse victory roll, AKA kind of just a standing Frankensteiner. And I remember that blew their minds. <laughs> I remember at the end of the tour, Mark Starr is like, did one he's like i just wanted to see if i could do one of those i can't believe it like it was such an uh, i'm not even kidding like that was such a revolutionary move at the time that they couldn't believe it it'd probably be like seeing you know nick jackson do a 690 or whatever the hell nowadays you know even like hayabusa and anyone who knows hayabusa and the crazy shit he could do it's like he was blown away that we did a double backflip from opposing corners. Right. Do you remember the time we decided to try to do one of our trademark high spots and we it was an outdoor show because I remember doing it on the bus. We were trying to convey to the referee our double leapfrog, double clothesline spot. <laughs> and so we're trying to walk through it where we'd push yes. on the backs of the seat yes. to hold ourselves in the air to try to get the referee to run underneath both of us. <laughs> yes. I vividly remember that. Like you said, using the chairs to push yourself up. So we both are pushed up and the ref kind of was like, he walks underneath the both of us. And we're like, okay, now you come back. And he came back and there's a double clothesline or double elbow, or whatever it was, right? Yeah. But and here's another thing that I noticed from reading. I remember this too. And back in these days, one year in the business, basically. And, you know, we were a tag team, but there's always a little bit of the rivalry. You, anytime we got the pin, you got it. Anytime we were pinned, they took it on me. Really? Yes. More times than not. So, th so that match <laughs> with Lance, uh, you got the pin. Uh, and then the next match was you and I versus Goto and Fuji in Nara, Japan. They pinned me. This is like Ed Langley, because all our matches in Calgary <laughs> as a team, Ed would always protect me. Yeah, exactly. Right. But yes, yeah, so, so that, that's fun. And I remember there was, there was a parking lot show that we had, which must have just been a little spot show. And that's the one where I had to get color. And then we had to go straight to the hotel. And I remember checking into the hotel just covered in blood. because I didn't bother taking my gear off. It was muddy and dusty. I remember that poor person behind the counter was like just terrified at this crazy guy. This chainsaw massacre. Who is this person? Blood all over us and everything like that. Uh, Do you remember the it was in the star lanes? I forget the name of the city. Hakata. We we popped because it was a bowling alley. Yes. And the local CNWA worked in a room at the back of a bowling alley. So we thought that was great. But that was, I believe, also the night we did the street fight battle royal. Yeah, which was a battle royal, but you had to get pinned in it to be eliminated. Right. And I don't <laughs> think either of us had street fight gear because we weren't uh, aware of that. For some reason, I think you wore like Zubaz shorts or something. That's exactly right. And, and so we had the street fight battle royal as well as I believe a tag match as well, because I have visions of me in our orange gear doing a flying elbow on shooter, I think, actually in that show. It's funny, but yeah, it's good, good memory, man. It's, it's Hakata is actually like in Fukuoka, which is in the south part of Japan. So that was uh, you and I, and Ultraman was our partner that night against Fu Ricky Fuji, Honda, who later became Mr. Gonosuke, and uh, Shooter, who was, became the punk. But the funny thing about the the Hakata Starlane is that I remember, and maybe, maybe I don't know if we said it then, but I'll definitely say it now. We trained in a bowling alley, worked our asses off to go to Japan to wrestle in a bowling alley. <laughs> <laughs> and similarly off topic, but my Lebanon tour, I remember thinking it's like I trained in Calgary. I worked in Calgary. 
I flew all the way to Beirut and I'm wrestling Jerry Morrow. <laughs> it's like I'm working the same guy and <laughs> just 10,000 miles away. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Well, let's talk about there's a great story that you told that I only remembered when you told it. And I got one too, a, a partying story. You mentioned the lobby parties. Yeah, there was one town because they, you know, they always booked us in the, you know, the business hotels the North American style hotels. I have a memory of something going on in the city that was big and all the hotels we'd usually stay in were booked. And this was a Japanese style hotel. Like I think a couple of the Americans had like the bedroll on the floor. My room had a bed, but it was not the cleanest, nicest hotel. I remember there being like a used bar of soap in the shower. Like I didn't even get into the bedding. I put a towel over the pillow and just stayed in my clothes and slept, but there was nothing anywhere around. So, and we had a fair bit of time to kill for some reason. And we all ended up cause there was, you know, beer vending machines in the lobby. So we all, I don't have memory of Ultraman and Pandita with us, but Mark, Horace, and Mike, yeah, and the two of us just, hey, let's just leave our bags in the room and we'll come down and sit in the lobby. And we went down to the lobby and everyone, with exception of me, I assume, um, was drinking beer and, and getting quite hooped in the lobby of this hotel. I don't remember who went first, but one actually made the mistake of hitting the button for a lager rather than a beer. Again, Mike and Horace were family as well as good friends. And the, whoever accidentally bought the logger first pawned it off on the, the other guy. And the other guy was hot that, you know, you made the mistake. Why do I get the logger? And mm, we're drunk. So it's like, what the hell? And he's all mad. And then the next round, the guy who got the logger went and purposefully bought the logger to give to the other guy. And then they started getting hot. And like, I, the one, I don't remember who it was, but one of them, I'll, I remember who it was. I know exactly through the, the, the logger at the other guy with an F you, you're not giving me a goddamn logger. You, and this poor scared to death, you know, 80 year old, tiny <laughs> Japanese guy behind the desk of the hotel. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, Oh, they're going to call the cops. We're all going to jail. That's exactly correct. But Boulder accidentally bought the logger for Mike. Awesome. Mike. Awesome. On purpose bought the logger and gave to Boulder. Boulder was the one who freaked out because like I said, Boulder's legit Hogan's nephew. So there's a lot of similarities in the way that they look and the way that they, and I remember him talking, thinking he sounds like fucking Hogan going like, I, I can't do whatever Hogan, that kind of Southern drawl, like a little bit. He was like, it's not fair, man. It's not like uh, you, you did it on purpose and I didn't do it on purpose. And that's just, that's just being an asshole, man. Like whatever he was saying. And he was just so hurt that his cousin <laughs> would have done it on purpose because mine was an accident. I didn't mean to. And you did this on purpose. You and threw the logger and then they're fighting. And I, I vividly remember that after you said it, that Boulder was so hurt and betrayed that, that Mike Awesome would have bought the, the wrong beer on purpose. We eventually, I think Mark stepped up and we eventually calmed them down because we were afraid that the, the guy at the desk would call the company on us yeah. and, and calmed it down. But yeah, it was, it was so funny. 
And, and uh, the Ultraman you mentioned, because I just remember we would go to these places and then, and then it was after a while, I was like, I can tell you meals that I had in Japan for most of my, but I can't remember really eating anything except for that first night at Lawson. And then I remember this Ultraman going, okay, Kentucky, okay, Kentucky. <laughs> and you'd find Kentucky fried chicken and it was like an oasis. And Ultraman, he was, he could speak a little Japanese. He was really cool. He was kind of like the, the, the liaison. And I remember okay, Kentucky. The- the biscuits and the honey with the Kentucky was a was a huge treat. Was a huge treat. I remember also uh, that's when we found out. I, you probably didn't, but the, that's when there was the machines by the TV that you could put hundred coin yens and you could watch a porno for about two minutes, and the the privates would be scrambled, right? And I remember Ultraman was going, "Amigo, do you like the puerno? <laughs> do you like puerno? Like I still use that this day. Do you like the puerno?" Another party that we had was on the back of the bus one night. We must have had a long drive. It was uh, tequila and uh, those big Japanese apples, the pear apples. In my memory, this was the last night. We finished okay. the last show, and this was the the celebration on the way back to Tokyo. Is my memory of that right? And and so I had a, a big bandaid on my face. Look at this picture. It's me, you, Mark Star, and and Gladiator or Graduator, as they called him over there. We, all three of us have terrible mullets. You just have the the box cut, and everyone's got apples and I'm and tequila. I'm wondering, did you take a shot, Lance, that night? If I had to guess, I would say yes. I think you did, but I don't recall it. But I I, I could see me taking one just for the sake of the camaraderie of the situation. Right. So I could see me taking one very tiny sip and then uh, chowing down on the apple. But that was also again the. The last night of the tour is when we actually got to work with Horace and Mike. Yes. And it was the big Gaijing match. And the shock of all shocks is we were beating them. Yes. Because we were the new younger guys and they were, you know, pretty big stars. So we were like, man, we're, you know, they're putting us over. They're definitely bringing us back. This is going to be great. And I also remember because one of the spots we used to have you know, we do the blind tag spot or whatever. And it's like, I'd run the ropes and duck the clothesline. And then I'd slingshot you in and you'd clothesline the guy when he turned around. Mm -hmm. We did this where we tried to do this with Horace Boulder. (laughs) And I remember we, we specifically, cause this is an icing. We're actually all in the same locker room. So we could talk shit out. We're like, Oh, this is going to be great. So we described the spot. It's like, I'll duck. And you know, you just turn around. And I remember when we did the spot, I duck and I grab the rope and I slingshot you. And as you're coming in, I look and Mark's or uh, Horace is like just coming off the other far rope. And he's like 18 feet away from you. And I'm like, uh, Chris ain't going to make it. <laughs> and I remember afterwards talking to him. It's like, dude, where were you? He's like, oh, I wanted to make it better. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to run into it. So I ran away to run into it. But yeah, the timing didn't work. Everything is like, dude, don't help us, please. And what happened in that match is the reason why they had us pinned. It wasn't just because we were the hot young upstarts. They were turning on each other. Yeah, planting the seed to break them up. And actually, this is the one match that I won. I got to pin the Gladiator with a backslide. And so I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Because I think Gladiator or uh, Boulder was holding me. Gladiator came for a clothesline. I duck. He hits Boulder. I backslide him one, two, three. And they start fighting. And then the next tour, they would come back and that would be the match. Boulder versus Gladiator. Yes. We were told we were going to come back in January and six times next year. Yes. Yes. They were very happy with us. And listen, judging by the booking and the fact they put us in that last match and had had us beat their two top guys at the time, 
that's not just willy-nilly booking. There's obviously some kind of a plan there, I would think, wouldn't you? Yeah, because they could have had one of the Japanese guys pick up the win if they, you know, if it was just about them breaking up. Yes. And that was sort of the weird thing, too, that we were babyface foreigners, which was sort of a, a unique situation. They called us uh, when we first started, we first came over there. They were calling us Canada's Steiner brothers, <laughs> which is strange because we weren't the Steiner brothers at all. But I think they just meant from a dynamic standpoint, we had that type of a feel or a vibe to us, maybe. Yeah, and, you know, Steiners were a big deal, so I guess that gives us a good rub by being mentioned in the same breath. Another thing I was going to say about the tequila apple party is that was the night, too, where we just they just attacked Ito and stripped him of all his clothes. <laughs> and he was just standing in the middle of the bus, like he was thinking a little bit drunk, too, and he just started, like, getting into it. I remember he had this little wee wiener, and <laughs> Mark Starr was like, you fuck with that thing? Ah! And Ido was just like, ah! He wasn't like, it was just, I remember they just, they were like a pack of animals just tearing off this guy's clothes just for a rib. There's your rib for you. Yep, classic. Do you remember the, the you and I got in a scuffle? I do. I remember, I have no idea how it started, but we're, you know, wrestling around. Like, we're not throwing punches. We're, we're wrestling around for whatever reason. I don't, in my mind, we were just fucking around. Right. And we're grappling, tussling, rolling our luck or whatever until you grab a handful <laughs> of your, of your, of your package. That was the end of that. I, I, yeah. And I let go with a, what the hell again? I, I think your description was sort of the one is like, you know, the, it was a, it was three weeks. It was a long tour. Yeah. And sometimes brothers don't always get along and. We were uh, venting some frustrations. Yeah, I think I probably got a little bit more excited about it than you did, only because, like you said, it wasn't quite three weeks. It's actually closer to two. With traveling, it was October 10th was the first match. October 24th was the last match. But if you look at this, it's we worked on the 10th, 11th, 12th, 14, 16, 17, and we had 18 and 19 off. So there's a lot of off days there. And the fact that I can't remember doing anything of merit tells me that we're probably pretty freaking bored just kind of hanging around. They took us to Hiroshima one day. Oh, that's right. Wow. I've got pictures of that. <laughs> that might be where Mark Starr thought that we saw him banging each other. Could be. Yes. Yeah. Because it was that area with the monument and everything's kind of in the in the mountains. Yeah. So they, they took us to that for a sightseeing adventure one day. But it's also just culture shock. Like we'd never been anywhere and we're wrestling quite regularly and 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 it's funny too because i could see where again it would have bothered me if it was the other way but i didn't even notice like maybe it did at the time but it's like our tag run in calgary because ed was had his hand in the booking all the time and ed didn't like you as much as he did me it's like there was times where we would do two out of three fall matches and it's like <laughs> you'd get pinned for the fall we lose and I'd get the pin for both times that we win. <laughs> and even our first show, it's like I win the Royal Rumble main event. <laughs> I could see there when we go to Japan, if that's the same situation, I could see where you're getting hot. Yeah. Maybe I did notice or probably not because I'm just green going, man, I'm picking up the win. I'm happy. And I don't see the other side of poor Cressy's getting pinned all the time. Well, but that, and like you said, back at that time frame, it really, it means something because, you know, it's like, I remember even in camp because you were so much more technically perfect. I was just getting like, I remember you, like I said, if we talk about all the time, you do the perfect leg drop and then kind of look at me with that look on your face like, <laughs> you're not even trying to be a dick. It's just you. Yeah. Like that's a Lance Storm. Like, boom, that's how it's done. I'd be like this motherfucker. I can't even do a leg drop. I still, to this day, 
have never done a leg drop in a match ever. I've had 32 years experience. I've never done a leg drop. I can't do them. It's just, and that's okay. But at the time, like I couldn't do a springboard. I couldn't jump right from the mat up to the top rope. Like you could remember the catch of the foot, do a backflip. Yes. The, the time you tore a chunk of hair out of your head. Cause they landed on my head on the lawn, but it's funny. And it's the insecurity of being the green guy where you want to be able to do everything. I was the exact same way, but it was over your personality and ability to talk. Right. That I was like, totally, it's like, oh my God, this guy, you know, I thought you were like Hulk Hogan charisma <laughs> level in our first match. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You said that too. And was just blown away. And that's the insecurity of the green guy is you want to be able to do everything perfect first out. And I'm just like, oh my God, Chris has just got all this charisma and this personality. It's like, he's so great. Yeah. And then you look at what, I was doing better than you. And I look at what you were doing better than me. And there's that insecurity of being young and green. Mm -hmm. If I'm picking up the win, I'm just happy because I'm young and green. And it's like, I don't realize that you're the one taking the falls and had it been the other way, I'd have been the insecure guy going, God damn it. You may feel the same way. Right. Yeah. 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 Do you remember, like, I, I remember one of the things, just a couple few kind of ragtag stories. When I got there, like I mentioned, I was a big fan of loudness. And I thought when we go to Japan, loudness is going to be everywhere. And they weren't, they, 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 you know, they were an eighties band that did okay. But I remember going to a records, a cassette shop at the time and saying, <laughs> is there any like heavy metal, Japanese heavy metal? And there was this band that was called X and I'd never heard them before. Obviously just a Japanese band. I bought the cassette. Well, here fast forward at 30 years, the guy behind is a guy called y Yoshiki, who is one of the biggest celebrities in Japan. And when X, they're called X Japan. Now when X Japan comes to the States, they sell out Madison Square Garden. They're like massive, but I discovered them like in 1991 and brought them back to my friends in Canada. You guys got to listen to this band. And they just became this legendary, you know, almost like a U2 or something like that of Japan. It's just interesting to me that I like, I found them way back then to when I met Yoshiki about three or four years ago, I was freaking out. Yoshiki, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he's like, how do you know me? I said, like, dude, I've known you since 1991. But it's just interesting how even that was kind of like, it was a, a brave new world. Like you mentioned, even eating the pachinko parlors. We did a lot of that where. Oh my God. Yes. Which are to explain what a pachinko parlor is. I'm assuming they were betting machines, yes. sort of a, a hybrid between a casino and a arcade. Yeah. You know, they just sit at these machines constantly putting in their m money and stuff. And they're very loud and very bright. Yeah, you would put in money. I believe there was even some kind of a, if there wasn't some kind of an arm that you pull, you push a button. And if you win, you win little steel balls. That's right. The ball bearings. The ball bearings. And that's why it's so loud because you're constantly hearing like that. Bing, 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 bing. And they still have them there to this day. And then you collect, it, almost like the a Japanese version of tickets that you would get like at a Chuck E. Cheese or something. You take your, your ball bearings and you take it to the front and you get prizes or money or whatever it is. So they were all over the place. I remember we did a lot of that being my first international tour, I did take a lot of pictures and that's why I have so many of them and wanted to put a lot of them in, in, in the completely list of Jericho. Do you remember the cassette tape I purchased at the music store being such a big music guy myself? <laughs> I don't. I being the complete loser with no knowledge of music. I bought a new Japan pro wrestling entrance music cassette. <laughs> I wish I still had it. Yeah, that's funny. I remember too, because uh, right before we went, that's when I was, you were dating Rosa. Yes. Remember Rosa? And I was dating her friend, Levina was her name. And I parked in front of her place and somebody stole all the cassettes out of my car. The briefcases of cassettes. Briefcases of cassettes. They stole them all. And somehow 
my dad was able to get it covered under home insurance and I got a check for like 300 bucks and I went to the music store and bought like 30. I went with you. You were like a kid in a candy, candy store. store. I remember still on that tour opening the cassettes on the Japanese tours because you know, still it's Walkmans back then, but there were still unwrapped cassettes because I didn't have time to listen to them all because we had come to Japan, you know? Um, I also remember that that I had the cassette for our ring music, which at the time was Overnight Sensation by a band called Firehouse. And I gave it to their music guy. And that was our music that we used. Okay. Well, last day of the tour, they didn't give me my cassette. And I was like, I got to get my cassette back. <laughs> and I made the whole van of the foreigners wait for them to run back to the office and get my cassette. I remember like Mark Starr going, what are you waiting for? It's like, my ring music. He goes, your ring music? <laughs> well, what is it? What's well, a firehouse cassette? I'll fucking buy you a firehouse cassette. We're going. Because Mark was Mark was a little bit of a dick. He had a little dickish side to him. He was the one out of the three. Like Mike Awesome, just a good old boy, bold of the same. Mark Stark, because even in WCW, he was the same. Kind of a little bit of an asshole. And I don't blame him. Like, can you imagine waiting for some idiot holding up the whole bus because you don't have your cassettes, $9.99, freaking, you know, Sam's record man or whatever. And do you remember the when uh, we got called into the office by Goto to be paid? Well, tell me your recollection. Because the end of the tour you'd get you know you all line up out front of his hotel room and you'd go in and they would pay you cash yes and thankfully we got called in together and he looks up and he's like oh you'd be paid you know six hundred dollars a week you took you know three hundred dollars in advances <laughs> three weeks 18 so here's fifteen hundred dollars each or whatever <laughs> and they start counting up the money and i i recall looking at you with our contract said 800 Mm -hmm. he just said six and i'm like should we say anything but again i'm scared because i was like i don't want to you know we're told you're coming back next year you got six tours coming i don't want to complain about my money and i'm like should we say something and you're like i think so and then you spoke up and just you know no disrespect but we were told and our contract said 800 and goto in my recollection says i was wondering 600 seems kind of small you guys were really good I will check. And if that's correct, we will send you the extra 600 bucks. Yeah. And we're like, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. And we left. If they sent it, Fred kept it. That's a possibility. Because the guy, a couple more details about the guy, um, the liaison, his name was Sakai. He was a, a magazine writer that was kind of the English liaison. He was in that room with us because Goto didn't speak great Japanese. Sakai was like kind of the middleman. And yeah, like you said, we'll, we'll send you them. I remember they also said, Onita wants you for six tours. Because the last day of the tour, I remember the, the, the vibe was like, don't talk to Onita. Mm, yes, yes. And I, and I was like, I don't know, rebel or like, oh, whatever. I'm going to go talk to him. Like, hey, hey, dude, like, thanks for having us or whatever. And I remember he kind of looked at me like I was completely insane. But every other time I've met Onita, he's looked at me like that too. Maybe three or four times total. And I don't know if that was an insult to him that I went and said hi or, or he was interested. Like, like oh, this is strange. But I remember just him just looking at me like I had three heads that the fact I went and said hi to him. When you said that, I just remembered now. And I think it was the only time I actually, other than potentially getting punched by him in that match, right near the end of the tour, didn't Ito come over and grab the two of us and say, Onita wants to speak with you and took us to the babyface locker room. Mm, maybe that was it. Yeah. And I think Onita, and again, maybe he did say, you know, you listen, you don't speak or whatever, but we came over and we're all, you know, bowing our heads, trying to be polite. And Onita said that he was very happy with us. Yes. And that he wanted us back 
six times next year. And maybe that's when you spoke up. Maybe. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, he just kind of looked at us kind of strangely. And that must be what it was. Because you're, you're right. He did. See, see here's the thing that t- to this day, it's still actually, and I have a theory of what happened. We can discuss that. They brought us in. Maybe it was Fred's suggestion. Maybe it was just they liked our look. It took a couple matches to get our groove on. And then they really enjoyed having us. Because once again, we gave them something different. It's a lot like the Cruiserweights in WCW in 97, 98, where it was something completely different that made the company stronger. And we were, we only had 70 matches between us, but we were fairly good for that level. And we could work with the Zaki and like you said, Goto really wanted to work with us and all these other guys. You know, and that's why I always kind of wondered why didn't they bring us back? What do you think? Why do you think they didn't bring us back? I always wanted to blame Fred. Yeah. And my memory is when we got back, Fred pulled the, you can't work for anybody else now. You're complete with us. And I have the memory of us going, no, we're going to, we have to work and keep sharp. We are still going to wrestle. And we took non-Fred bookings in Calgary. So I suspect that he nixed us. Yeah. Um, the reason why I think that too is, it, you know, that happened to me a couple of the times in my career, except for my boss told me. I remember one time with Tenru, Vampiro had told him I didn't want to work there anymore. Oh. And Tenru asked me about it. I was like, no. And he had done the same thing to me in Mexico with Paco Alonso. I think Fred probably told them that they're not available. They didn't like it. They don't want to come back because there's no reason for them not to bring us back. We worked cheap. Yep. They didn't pay us the money or maybe they did and Fred kept it. We got along with everybody because it's it's the, it's the same old story with Boulder and, and, and Mark and Gladiator. Once they got to know us and respected our work, that's how you get over with the boys. That's how I got over in WWE when, when I worked with Bob Hawley for, you know, three or four months. And then he's telling guys, oh, the guy's really good. Like you should give him a chance. We had become friends with those guys. Yep. There was really no reason for them not to bring it. There was no reason for them to string us along and lie to us. And plus, as we know, Japanese don't do that. They'll just say like, maybe we call you or, you know, they won't say they, they, it wasn't a stroke job, what they told us. Yeah. So I, I think it had to have been Fred and it was because we weren't completely. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Fred. Yeah. Yes, we will only work for you. Here's 20% of our money. You're such a great person. We we didn't suck up to Fred when we come back. And I, I think that's why we didn't go back again. You ended up going back for that one show, but that was it. Well, and then we could just have a little quick epilogue on that. So that so in September of 92, so nine months later, or 11 months later, they call us finally to go work a stadium show in Kanagawa. I believe that was Onita versus Tiger Jeet Singh. It was one of the first stadium shows that they'd had. And then the whole time, like, I wanted to go back so bad. And when they finally gave us the call, I was so excited. You had a different mindset. Yeah, we had dis- we'd gone our separate ways. Like we were still friends. We're still in Calgary, but we're doing singles now. Yeah. And when they called, there was two things. One, it was like going back to the team just felt like a step back. Right. But I really hated Fred. Yeah. Yeah. Also, too, I had a bit of a. No, FMW, Onito lied to me. He said six times next year, you come back in January. And it's like, they call us in September. I felt lied to by FMW, which maybe they didn't. Maybe it was all Fred. But I knew Fred was a piece of shit I didn't want to deal with. And it's like, I didn't want the headache of dealing with Fred. So I just decided it's like, nope, I'm saying 
you know, no to the first booking I've ever said no to <laughs> and decided not to go back. And that, and that's to me was like, it was, it was so like, and you're totally right. Like you, you made the right decision. I was just like, I want to get out of here. I want to go back to Japan. Like I really did like it there and we hadn't gotten any other offers. So when you say, do you want to go? It's like, well, you know, it's, I'm just, I'll just get another singer and continue the band. And so <laughs> and you got Eric, I got Eric freeze and then had to track down our jacket, the one that Lenny's mom made that's now been immortalized in, a, in an action figure, but you had sold yours or something or given it away to the white one or the other. Yeah. I don't recall, but yeah, it was someone I assume probably sold it to him. Yeah. It was a guy called the white dog, Jason Wilkinson. I don't remember that. He was a referee, but he also wrestled as the white dog. He was probably this big. And I was like, Hey dude, I need to borrow. He wouldn't let me borrow it. <laughs> and I was like, no, you're going to let me borrow it. You know, or all whatever. So I was able to get that, and then we went over there. And you know, listen, Eric was, was meat and potatoes. He was all right, but he wasn't Lance Storm. And I remember we first went there. Goto went, Bruns, you lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, this is a different guy. He was name was Eric Freeze, but they couldn't pronounce Freeze, so his name was Eric Hool over there. Yeah, which is actually his real name, I believe. I think so. Yeah, exactly. As we kind of wrap up, what are your kind of final memories of that experience and, and kind of how do you look back on that? I look back on pretty much every trip favorably because it was such a big deal. And, and just the the photo we have, yeah, I assume it was when we finally got back to Tokyo of all of the FMW oh. crew, us, you know, out in front of the hotel taking that group Frodo. And it was just, it was so great to be in a different group of people than the local Calgary guys. Yeah. It's like, you know, your, your new group of friends from another company. And it's, it just felt like this was a really big, important step that we weren't just good enough to survive the local crappy shows in Calgary. It's like, this is a different country, a different stage. And we did well. Yeah. And it was sort of a degree of validation. I agree. It, you know, like you said, you, you think you can make it, we'll go out there and, and see. And it gave me a lot of confidence, the weight of, and all that, match and all that stuff like goto was was he liked us he was fun to work with izaki was great i remember always a shooter was a little bit of a rough guy to work with but i remember i liked with being with him we were working with new guys and once again you're not calling any high spots mm -hmm. and also too that established a friendship with izaki and i because i i saw him two years later in mexico and hung out with him for he was over there for about two or three months and we hung out quite a bit cool there's a great picture of us backstage in Reno, Mexico, sharing a cigarette of all things, <laughs> but they're just a great guy, you know, and, and, you know, you, and, and, and even working with Onita, who then I worked with again in WAR and knocked him out in the middle of the, of the sumo arena with a lion saw where the knee hit him in the fucking head. But I mean, I was, I was talking to Meltzer and we were talking about somebody that passed away that had worked with so many people. And I was like, I might be the next guy that's worked with more generational big names than anybody else at this point in time. Because if you look at it, like Onita is on that list, you know, and all those guys from Japan, all the guys from Mexico, all of our Calgary guys, all, you know, ECW, WCW, it goes on and on and on. But I remember just being in the ring with Onita and Goto. I mean, those are two fairly big names that we can say we worked with. Yeah, absolutely. But, but really did enjoy it. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why I was so desperate to go back because I just wanted to, to be there again. But we eventually did go back and had amazing careers in japan is there a match that stands out for you from the tour that that, that, you, that was your favorite i don't remember where it was but to me it was the first one that we really sort of felt like we found our groove in stars i, re I remember it was like in a gym or something 
and walking to the ring, it's like the crowd was standing and we sort of had to walk through the people. And it felt like there was like a bit of a tunnel of people that were walking through getting a big reaction. And it was like the first time I felt really like we're over, like we're stars here. (laughs) And again, it was probably against Izaki and someone else, but it was like, I think it was sort of like a, here's two, you know, Japanese young lions. And it's like, you guys go out there and you win. And we went out and hit, you know, our double team moves and stuff and won. And it really felt like we're getting a push. We're getting over, we're being stars or whatever. It felt like a big moment for me. Mm -hmm. And it was also, I don't know if it was that match. I did my very first dive to the floor (laughs) in FMW and it was Izaki. And I remember, I guess it was somewhere where we could talk to them because I, I had said that maybe I would dive and just said, so if you are on the floor, keep your eyes open. I might do, you know, house show dive plancha because they had the blue mats on the floor, mm-hmm. just the little strips of blue mats, not the all the way around. And I'm thinking, it's like, wow, there's a mat there. I could do a dive. <laughs> and I did the plancha. And when I landed, we completely cleared the mats and I just landed on the gym floor and didn't get hurt. And I'm like, oh, I guess I don't really need the mats. <laughs> and it was like my very first dive. So those were the two memories that really stuck out for me. Yeah, because we were there, like you mentioned, just to clarify one thing too, we, we got paid three weeks because they, they would pay us on six days, not seven. Yeah. So we were technically there with travel, like 18 days, whatever it was total. But that time that we were there, I, that was probably, I would guess, in the second week, because the first week we were there, then the magazines come out because there was weekly magazines and I bet you there's a lot, they gave us a lot of great coverage, color photos and all that sort of stuff that probably helped with us getting over. Uh, for me, it was the first match, just kind of getting thrown into this blood sport arena, <laughs> having no idea what to do, fighting for our lives and then surviving and going like, all right, we did it. Great times, man. Uh, great memories. And I'm glad that uh, we we're able to share that. It's hard to believe it was in 32 years ago, almost. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That means we're we're both uh, older than 35. <laughs> hey, you're going to be the same age as Ed Langley was uh, when he trained us. How crazy is that? Yeah. Like he w- like he looked like he was 70 and told everybody he was 65. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, man. Well, it's always good to chat with you and we'll have to pick another uh another one of our uh tours or histories to do next time. All right, man. Thanks, man. Cheers, dude. Thanks.